If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and... We are so grateful. Thank you so much. Even leftists fall into this trap by the way that they narrate privilege and they say, okay, these are the privileged. These are the people for whom the system has worked. By even doing that, you're buying into a certain set of values and aspirations and norms that are not actually true. In this part two of our conversation, American public speaker and author Charles Eisenstein continues on to take us through topics including how the responses of various governments to the pandemic, justifiable or not, such as lockdown, quarantine, surveillance and tracking, censorship of misinformation, have been authoritarian, and why we should remain critical of these approaches even if we understand their immediate term purpose how our dominant use and acceptance of the meaning of certain words, such as privilege, to mostly mean financially well-off or white, feed into implicitly upholding the same value systems that we're trying to challenge and dismantle, and more. Again, another really thought-provoking discussion worth setting aside some contemplative time towards. So do buckle up, Green Dreamer, take a deep breath, and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
In the conspiracy myth, in discussing what we can learn from the underlying truth of the literalism of conspiracy theories around the coronavirus, you touch on our current response to the pandemic being authoritarian. So you say justifiable or not, lockdown, quarantine, surveillance, and tracking, censorship of misinformation, suspension of freedom of assembly and other civil liberties, and so on, are indeed authoritarian, end quote. Specifically on censorship of information, I feel like that in of itself was partly what led to the increasing public distrust in journalism and even science. That's where some of that comes from as well. And you say our institutions of knowledge production and our political institutions have betrayed public trust repeatedly. So you highlight their loss of trust is a symptom of a loss of trustworthiness. So all of this leads me to ponder, you know, is the answer to misinformation out there to resort to censorship and giving authority to governments or social media like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube moderators to decide what is fact or fiction? or to train people to become better critical thinkers. And on a similar note, is the answer to the increasing prevalence of virus pandemics to resort to targeting and killing the virus itself while creating a more isolated society? Or is the answer to, again, examine why our collective immunity has been compromised and work towards improving our public health, which does include social connection? Starting with authoritarianism, and what to do about misinformation. See, the thing is, so like, you, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, government control or the control of Twitter and Facebook moderators and stuff. We, for, for one thing, we have to understand that government and large corporations are one and the same, or that they are two branches of the same entity, basically. Not that they're always in perfect agreement, but they are the dominant powers of our society. So I don't really make much of a distinction, you know, between whether censorship is happening by corporations or by governments. It's it's pretty much all the same thing. As we move closer and closer to fascism, uh, which is essentially the unity of government and corporations, that is going to become more and more true. And the problem, of course, is when, when it comes to censoring misinformation and disinformation is who decides what is true and what is not? What is dangerous and, and, and what is important and useful? If those who are making those decisions are one and the same with those who are, say, profiting from pharmaceutical medicines or profiting from the military-industrial complex, profiting from militarism and, and imperialism and so forth, then to them, what looks like misinformation is going to be anything that questions those institutions. So we have today, there's there's some degree, it's not as much as actually the, um, it's not quite as bad as people are afraid. It's, you know, there's like everybody, like I, I, I see things on YouTube all the time about how YouTube is censoring information. It's a pretty leaky sieve if that is, in fact, what they are doing. But it is happening, for example. But a lot of it isn't outright censorship. It's more of a subtle control of the narrative. So, like, for example, yeah, I mean, everyone's heard of hydroxychloroquine, you know, and, and because Trump said it was effective. And now all of a sudden, if you think that it's effective against COVID-19, then you must be a Trump supporter. And that but 
there are herbal medicines like Stephen Buhner has come up with a complete like three part protocol for preventing and treating COVID-19 that it's not just something that he, you know, pulled out of thin air. It's based on decades of scholarship and citations of hundreds or even thousands of scientific papers, which doesn't prove that it works. But where is the funding to run clinical studies on something like the Buner Protocol or on something like Artemisia annua, which is being used all over Africa to treat COVID-19, just as it, they've used it to treat malaria uh, and had that treatment be suppressed by the pharmaceutical industrial complex or in China using uh, astragalus and other herbal, herbal formulas to very successfully prevent and, and, and treat COVID-19. Like, I'm not, and I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not going to declare to you right now that these things are effective. All I'm asking is, where is the hundreds of millions of dollars of research into these to match the hundreds of millions or billions of research into pharmaceutical I mean, hydrochloroquine is a pharmaceutical drug, actually. You know, I'm not a huge fan of it. But like it's so it's just, it's this matter of priorities and what and once that research isn't happening, then of course there's not going to be authoritative information on it that won't get censored by Facebook because it hasn't become part of the canon of acceptable official information. So, you know, it's, it's, it's more subtle than outright censorship. It's this institutional bias where some things are funded and some aren't. It's not because the scientists are evil. It's because there's no relatively no funding or uh, publishing opportunities or academic promotions uh, available if you're studying things that can't be patented and can't, can't be made into profitable treatments. And also that don't fit into the paradigm of killing something as the solution to illness. So, so it's, it's, I wish it were as simple as uh, ending censorship, but it goes much deeper than that. The censorship is just the capstone of a gigantic intellectual and economic structure. And I, uh, so that's like one-tenth of a response to the things you were just brought up. <laughs> Things are never simple. There's always so so much complexity in these topics. And I think it's interesting because it's generally people who lean left in their politics who have been very willingly abiding by these new rules of isolation imposed upon us for the greater good because we want to use this as a means to be able to then achieve our freedom to be close to our friends and neighbors again safely. And it's typically people who lean right, who feel more adamant about maintaining their freedom at all costs, rebelling against these mandates imposed on us. But to me, neither really get us closer to the type of freedom that I think we're yearning for, because by only listening to these sort of myopic war mentality responses to the virus pandemic with the increasing prevalence of virus infections, we can sort of see that this might just take us towards a world where social disconnection and even a fear of social gatherings become normalized. Mm -hmm. And for those who reject collaborative and collective efforts in dealing with crises like this, the cost of their immediate individual freedom, maybe the lives or livelihood of people they love or even their own health and livelihood, which are just other ways of losing your freedom. It's, it's really confusing because 
as far as I knew, uh, criticism or dissent from authority, skepticism about authority, that was supposed to be the left. I mean, that was like a slogan in the 1960s, question authority, rethink everything, and, and uh, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out. It was the, the, the lefties, the peaceniks, the hippies who dropped out of the medical system and of the school system and grew their own food and ate organic, you know, and went to yoga classes and so forth and, and really forged a new path. And now you're right. It seems like it's people who describe themselves as liberal or left are the ones who are most trusting of authority. And it's those who identify with the right who tend to be more skeptical of, uh, at least when it comes to COVID-19, the official narratives. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily because they want personal freedom. It's complicated. For some of them, I mean, there definitely are people who are like, don't want to be inconvenienced <laughs> by, by distancing and lockdown. Like, there's definitely that. I mean, there's part of me that, you know, wishes that things were different because I don't want to be inconvenienced. Like, I, I will confess to that. But there's also a sense, because I, I tune into some of the uh, right-wing people, uh, some of these groups and websites, you know, and there's also a sense of injustice and indignation and, and uh, a resistance to what they see as a totalitarian takeover in the name of biosecurity. So it's not actually accurate to caricaturize them as just seeking their own personal freedom. It's, it's also getting really murky who's left and who's right these days because another cornerstone in, in my world of the left is that it's anti-war. And a lot of the anti-war websites are now libertarian or i mean there's then there's the neocons you know who are even more pro-war than anybody else so i I just wonder if this whole left right distinction is among other things breaking down and part of the generalized breakdown in our our society's defining stories and and in it seems like reality itself that's that's one reason why people are adhering so desperately to these partisan polarized narratives because it gives you uh, at least a little security you know it, it tells you here's what's happening and here's who you are in this confusing time so people people like grab that as their security blanket but maybe the traditional uh, ways that we've understood ourselves and categorized ourselves aren't really working anymore. And it's not so much right and left, but it is an opportunity to connect across traditional political boundaries and to form, I think I might've said this in that other essay, to to forge a new populism. Mm. I mean, there's so many issues today that are that are being used to divide us and to turn our attention away from what we have in common, what our common interest is as a people. Uh, one example was, I, I talked about class, you know, and it makes me sound like some kind of Marxist, but, but just the distraction of race politics today from the generalized decay of modern quality of life, 
over the last generation. What is not being talked about is more important than what is being talked about. It's not that what is being talked about is unimportant, but to the extent that it sets us up into warring camps that expend all of their energy fighting each other and none of their energy digging down into the deeper causes of things, it is a way to maintain the status quo. And the media industrial complex sort of profits off of inciting outrage Mm -hmm. and perpetuating these divisions. So I do feel similarly as well that we're failing to connect on our basic commonalities that we really share just as being human beings. And we've been fixated on a lot of things that are polarizing, but that may not really affect us on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, on the race issue, what I fear is that you mentioned this earlier as well. If corporations just replaced white CEOs with with a person of color as the CEO, or if uh, I don't know, like fossil fuel industries invited some indigenous or black people onto their boards, I worry about the same exploitative and extractive system continuing without really getting to the heart of all of this, getting to the heart of what is driving these injustices in the first place. And right now, I do feel like a lot of different injustices are converging. So there is climate justice, there's racial justice, economic justice, and these are injustices that span the entire political spectrum. So I know a lot of blue-collar workers might lean right, at least under my impression, and a lot of people that care about racial justice might lean left. But we all sort of share the same common oppressor in that sense. So I do think it's important now to sort of unite our goals and to work together in our path going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is, I think, a value, you know, the word inclusivity Diver, you know, uh, diversity, inclusivity, and so forth. It kind of seems like what it means is, yeah, we're going to bring, you know, people of color and other oppressed minorities into into the banquet hall, and you know, let them have a seat at at the table, and let them be the CEO, and let them help administer the world destroying machine. But really, what there's another possibility here that is much healthier. Which is, which is to say, our civilization has reached an impasse and we don't know what to do. And we need perspectives that from outside the mainstream of our civilization. We need the knowledge that the marginalized and oppressed have held. So it's not that so much that we're going to include them but it's we're, you know, like, come on in to our castle and join the, the nobility, you know, <laughs> join the but it's more like maybe we're ready to go out and play with them. Mm. Maybe we're ready to, to learn from them. Maybe we're ready to expand beyond what we thought we knew to to explore ways of knowing and thinking and, and seeing that the modern mind has been conditioned away from. And, and, you know, I mentioned ways of, of healing, too. That would be part of it, too. So it's more of a, a moment. Um, I think it's, it's coming because of the failure 
of our system to deliver its promises. The promises being a technological and social utopia that would be brought about by science and reason and markets and technology. Like we, like if you just backtrack to the 50s and 60s, we were so sure that we knew how to do this thing. So sure that we were going to lift up the entire world in what we call development and bring them up to our standards and make them like us and modernize everything. The whole world would, like even this vision of progress is still with us in, in the form of Mark Zuckerberg and, and Bill Gates, you know, aspiring to bring smartphones and computers and broadband to every person on earth. Like that was this messianic vision of, of the triumph of uh, technology and, and our way of thinking. And that is becoming less and less tenable as we not only look at the ongoing destruction that it has wrought socially and ecologically, but even within our own society, that paradise has never manifested. And, and not only has it not manifested among the traditionally oppressed, but now the decay has invaded and hollowed out the, even the you know, white middle class, even the upper middle class now is starting to, to fall into the pit. Mm. Uh, and and even those that, at the top aren't necessarily yes. doing well at a personal level. No. Other than financially. Yeah, if you want to find a happy human being, a joyful human being, you're not going to go, you're not going to find them in, in you know, the Hamptons or, or <laughs> Greenwich or Beverly Hills. You're going to find them in uh, a village in Bangladesh. You're going to find them in uh, Ghana or in Peru, in a, you know, in a mountain village. That's where you find people who radiate joy, not in mansions in in Greenwich, Connecticut. <laughs> save the river, save the seas, save the mother and her family. How can you take what you want and say that we are free? If you put oil in the water, we won't sit quietly. They were singing, stand up, stand up for what's right. Don't walk, don't walk silently to the night. Take my hand and wear, say it's through. If fight for me, I'll fight for you. And that's the that's the sad part, too, is because this narrative is so deeply embedded into our society that everybody who's not up there see that as the place to get to. So everybody yeah. else who currently isn't doing so great, they see that as the place to get to to feel better and to achieve contentment and life satisfaction when the people even up leftists, there haven't even achieved that for themselves. Yeah. Even leftists fall into this trap. But, but by the way that they narrate privilege and they say, okay, these are the privileged. Mm. These are the people for whom the system has worked. By even doing that, you're buying into a certain set of values and aspirations and norms that are not actually true. Like, and when we understand that this isn't working even for the billionaires, I mean, it is by a certain standard, 
and and if we are in the system that we are in now, it is certainly better to be uh, in the one percent than to you know live in a, a a ghetto somewhere. But is it actually? I mean, even that I want to question. I, I was in a uh, a favela in uh, Sao Paulo a couple of years ago, and you know there were <clears throat> there were people were dirt poor there, like literally dirt poor in that their house didn't have a floor. And that's what dirt poor means. <laughs> Many people were food insecure, but the streets were full of kids and everybody knew each other. And there were a lot of happy people. And there was almost nobody who, who was, I mean, people were actually even in a lot of ways healthier than the American norm, which, you know, suffers, which whatever is on an average of five prescription medicines and a fifth of all women on, you know, antidepressants and half of all children with a chronic condition and 40% of the population uh, overweight or more than that, actually 60%. I mean, you know, the state of our country. And I'm like, how much money does it take to compensate for your for getting divorced or for your teenager getting addicted to something or suicidal? I mean, these afflictions do not spare the wealthy. And, and this is just another invitation out of a frozen dialogue, in this case, the one that goes by the name of interrogating privilege. Like, mm. let's interrogate privilege on a deeper level than taking the values for granted that we've used to even define what privilege is. Like, what about the privilege of walking outside and knowing the name of every person and their story and of every plant and animal and their medicinal use and, and their relationships with each other? Like, what about that? that we, every human being used to have when we lived in tribes and villages. To be that embedded, to feel that level of belonging, to know everybody around you and every person, every being, every animal, every bird, and to be known and to be related. Like, what about that? That's not actually privilege. Privilege means special rights granted by authority. I mean, the whole concept of privilege depends on an authority to grant or withhold it. Like, what about... I mean, we just need to to broaden the conversation. And when we do that, it defies traditional left and right categories and provides the basis for uh, a new solidarity. I think all of this shows that we really have to redefine and broaden our perceptions of wealth and poverty because the ways that we're defining this right now by our dominant culture isn't really working and it's not leading people who are wealthier better off. It's not, it doesn't mean that people who live with financial poverty are necessarily worse off. And like you said, um, this was really an aha moment for me. So I really want to thank you for this discussion. Using the word privilege in of itself to talk about people who are better off financially in our system implicitly perpetuates this value system that we're trying to change. So language, mm -hmm. I think, is really important when we're trying to convey certain messages. So this is definitely something 
we should be mindful of and to think about and to apply to other words that we commonly use, use as well. And I know you call this time a coming of age ordeal that is presented to us. So I'm wondering what you think is needed for us to make our way through this time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That was very well put. It's not really so necessarily so much about using the wrong words, but it's just to be aware of what the words encode. Like there's this whole language police thing where where we think that changing the words we use is, I mean, that's the most visible thing, but it's really, even if we keep the words the same, if we can excavate what we mean by them, uh, we can gain a lot of insight. And then once we've done that, maybe our language begins to evolve. Anyway, as far as a coming of age ordeal, yeah, it's what I was saying before about how our our basic way of approaching the world isn't working anymore. And underneath that way of approaching the world that I named as science, technology, markets, reason, et cetera, is a conception of who we are and why we're here. I call it the defining myth of our civilization that upon which our civilization is built, which basically says that who we are is separate individuals uh, in an objective world that does not have the qualities of a self. That, that uh, you know, a human being is a full self and animals maybe have some rudiment of selfhood, but the world, the sun, the moon, water, soil, rocks, wind, clouds, these are just permutations of forces and masses. And they're not, they don't have beingness. They don't have selfhood. That's a defining myth of our civilization that justifies or makes inevitable the treating of the world as if it were not sacred, as if it were just a bunch of stuff. Another part of the defining myth says that because we are separate individuals, our nature is to maximize our self-interest. Like, why wouldn't you if I'm separate from you? But your well-being has nothing to do with my well-being if we're separate. Maybe conditionally it does, but fundamentally I could exploit you and I'll be better off and you'll be worse off. That's, that's the logic of the story of separation. So it applies among ourselves. It applies in our relationship to the world. And, and what I'm saying is that the civilization built on this is at a crisis moment. And that story, that mythology is no longer working. And we have, and it, and it has generated a series of intensifying crises that are like a birth crisis propelling us into a new story as the old disintegrates. And that we are in this key moment now, much like a coming of age, much like an entrance into adulthood, where we learn who we really are, not separate from nature, not separate from each other, but to use Thich Nhat Hanh's word for it, that we are interbeings and that our purpose here is not to dominate nature, conquer nature and transcend nature, but our purpose here is to contribute to nature, to participate in nature, to, to understand that, that Gaia, that earth created us for the same reason that she created all species, which is to make the world even more alive and that our unique gifts are actually for that purpose. That we are, 
I mean, a lot of environmentalists think that we are nature's big mistake, you know, and that the earth would be better off without us. And, and that encodes a profound distrust of this being we call earth. Uh, actually, we are beautiful creations and all of our gifts have a purpose to, to contribute to the unfolding of beauty and complexity and aliveness in the world. And, and maybe, you know, indigenous cultures understand this principle, but as a civilization, we've definitely not acted in that way. And that this breakdown right now is giving us the opportunity to step into our adulthood as a species, to step into our gift, to realize our purpose, to contribute to first it is the healing and regeneration of the world. And then who knows over a span of thousands of years, how we will contribute to the coming alive of the world and the cosmos. But, but right now it's very clear as we step into that new story, that new and ancient story of interbeing, of participation, of the sacredness of all things, of, of relationality, of understanding that anything that happens to you on some level inevitably affects me because we're not, we're not really separate. That anything that, that any, that any country we bomb, that any population that we imprison necessarily means that something is dying or something is imprisoned within ourselves, that any species that goes extinct or any rainforest that cuts down, that gets cut down means that something inside of ourselves has gone extinct too. Something else has been, been made desolate with every desert that we create. There's an inner desolation. That understanding is our graduation into adulthood, into our true purpose. And on an individual level too, like probably a lot of people listening to this have had this moment where you realize that, that the, the old story of how to be human was misleading that the, 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 the ambition to be financially secure, to be powerful, to be dominant doesn't actually bring any happiness and that we only feel fulfilled and joyful when we are acting on that imperative to contribute to the beauty and aliveness of the world. I also wonder if our story of interbeing and of interrelation and the sacredness of all life is tied at all to our culture's fear of death, or rather whether our culture's fear of death is tied to the story of separation, rather than there are some cultures that sort of embrace death as a form of transformation, because when you do see all, all life as being sacred and this earth as being sacred, and you have a broader sense of self, it makes you less fearful of the dying and the decay of your personal bodily self. Right. Yeah. Cause if the self is nothing but a skin encapsulated consciousness that depends on the brain for its existence, then, then death is the total annihilation of everything. And most cultures did not believe this. They understood the self to be relational and, and, and that means that when the separate self dies, most of you is still there and then maybe takes another form. I mean, most cultures believed in some kind of afterlife or reincarnation. 
And is it that we have finally become more intelligent than them and we've got it right now? A lot of people, you know, even if that's what our science teaches us, many, many people have had experiences to the contrary. I was just uh, interviewing um, Dr. Edith Ubuntu Chan, whose son basically at age four or five started to relate to her his experiences before he, quote, jumped into her belly. And he has like these detailed memories of what it was like to be in this bardo between between lifetimes. And, you know, just very matter of factly describes like, you know, their old apartment before he was born, what it looked like, like things like that. And many people have experiences that point to a larger self than the Cartesian skin encapsulated ego, uh, a larger self than the genetically programmed biological meat machine, a larger self than the Adam Smithian economic interest maximizing actor. And, and as, as we embrace that larger self, death becomes much less scary. And I think that as we embrace that, we could look even at something as practical as the COVID-19 response in with different eyes, because right now the response is all about, quote, saving lives, which is actually a misnomer. Uh, there's no such thing as saving lives. It's actually postponing death because <laughs> we're all going to die. And But we might say, you know, is life prolongation actually the highest value? Higher, like if, if, if we could preserve our life expectancy, our average life expectancy by never having festivals, dances, uh, weddings, concerts, choirs again, like if that's what it takes, should we do it? Is there a time to, to, to balance the value of risk minimization or safety with other values? To, to live more fully rather than to just try to survive as long as possible. Ultimately, it's going to come down to questions like that because COVID-19 could be replaced by COVID-20, COVID-21. It mutates. Uh, immunity doesn't last. Now comes the flu. Now comes some other disease. As long as we hold as the highest value, quote, saving lives, then we are going to never go back to normal because we can always be safer. And all of the totalitarian stuff is, I'm not saying it's going to be, uh, it'll be permanent. That's what I'm saying. And, you know, it might come in fits and starts, but right now the precedent has been sense has been set of safety above all else. And I'm not saying safety is not important, but there are other values too. And the other values become more prominent as we change our attitudes about death. 
Not to mention, there are also a lot of other epidemics that potentially have higher death rates than COVID-19. But I could go on and on with you. So I think we have to wrap up. Um, what is your recommendation to our listener who simultaneously feels too small to make a difference, but also that they can't live with themselves if they didn't do what they can? And specifically, what is there? What, what can we do to help our human collective to reintegrate back into this tribe of all life on Earth? Well, what any given person should do depends uniquely on their circumstances. I would just say that as we embrace our purpose here of contributing to the aliveness, the healing, the beauty of the world, and, and we really embrace that and we know that is true of ourselves, then we notice opportunities to act on that that we may not have noticed before. And we have courage that may not have been present before. And we become willing to sacrifice things in our lives that don't contribute to that. So just without even forcing ourselves to do it, our preferences change, our likes and dislikes, um, what makes us feel good, our desires, these all change as we embrace new information. Whereas we, and it's not even new information, so I would just uh, advise people to take a moment to simply feel the truth that your purpose here is to contribute to the aliveness, healing, and beauty of this planet. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Charles's writing, books, and speaking, you can head to charleseisenstein.org. Charles, it's been an incredible honor to have you here. Thank you so much for this deeply enriching and thought-provoking conversation. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Uh, well, thank you, Kamei. I really uh, enjoyed it. Um, as for final words, any naivete that you have, any innocence, any Daring to do something unrealistic is such a treasure because according to what we've learned, what we've been taught, let's say, a, a, a truly healed world is impossible. And how much of we else have we been told is impossible, that it's actually possible? So that impulse that is especially characteristic of young people to disbelieve the limitations that society has offered. That's a treasure. And doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. Doesn't mean that there aren't limitations. But they aren't what we've been told they are. This is Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, we would love to have your direct support starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support so we can keep this show going and accessible to the public. Today's song feature is Fight For You by Ray Zaragoza, whose work you can find at rayzaragoza.com. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for tuning in and uh, committing to learning with us. And I will catch you soon in the next episode. 